Section 42 of Around the World on a Bicycle, Volume 2. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Avai in May 2012. Around the World on a Bicycle, Volume 2 by Thomas Stevens. Chapter 20, Part 1 The Home Stretch. During the afternoon, the narrow Kuruma road merges into a broad, newly made macadam, as fine a piece of road as I have seen the whole world round. Wonderful work has been done in grading it from the low-lying rice fields, up, 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 by the most gentle and even gradient, to where it seemingly terminates, far ahead between high rocky cliffs. The picture of charming houses and beautiful terraced gardens, climbing to the very upper stories of the mountains here, beggars description. One no longer marvels at what he has seen in the way of terraced mountains in China. New sensations of astonishment await me as the upper portion of the smooth boulevard is reached, and I find myself at the entrance to a tunnel about 500 yards long and 30 feet wide. The tunnel is lit up by means of big reflectors in the middle, shining through the gloom as one enters like locomotive headlights. It is difficult to imagine the Japs going to all this trouble and expense for mere jinrikisha and pedestrian travel. Yet such is the case, for no other vehicular traffic exists in the country. It is the only country in which I have found a tunnel constructed for the ordinary roadway, although there may be similar improvements that have not happened to come to my notice or ear. One would at least expect to find a toll-keeper in such a place, especially as a person has to be employed to maintain the lights, but there is nothing of the kind. A few miles beyond the tunnel, the broad road terminates in a good-sized seaport, whence I encounter some little difficulty in finding my way along zigzag field paths to my proper road for the north. The rain has fallen at intervals throughout the day, but the roads have averaged good. Fifty miles, or thereabout, must have been reeled off when, at early eventide, I pull up at a village Yadoya. Before settling myself down for rest and supper, I take a stroll through the village in quest of possible interesting things. Not far from the Yadoya, my attention is arrested by a prominent sign in italics, European Eating Kamea House. Entertaining happy visions of beefsteak and bass ale for supper, I enter the establishment and ask the young man in charge whether the place is a hotel. He smiles bows and intimates his woeful ignorance of what i am saying the following morning is frosty and low scudding clouds denote unsettled weather as i resume my journey much of the time my road practically follows the shore and sometimes simply follows the windings and curvatures of the gravelly beach most of the low land near the shore appears to be reclaimed from the sea low flat-looking mud-fields protected from overflow by miles and miles of stout dikes and rock-ribbed walls fishing villages abound along the shore and for long distances a recent typhoon has driven the sea inland and washed away the road thousands of men and women are engaged in repairing the damages 
with the abundance of material ready to hand on the sloping granite shale hills around the foot of which the roadway winds fish are cheaper and more plentiful here than anything else and the old dame at the yadoya of a fishing village cooks me a big skate for supper which makes first-rate eating in spite of the black malodorous sauce she uses so liberally in the cooking in this room is a wonderful brass-bound cabinet suggestive of soul-satisfying household idols and comfortable private worship during the evening i venture to open and take a peep in this cabinet to satisfy a pardonable curiosity as to its contents my trespass reveals a little wax idol seated amid a wealth of cheap tinsel ornaments and bits of inscribed paper before him sets an offering of rice sake and dried fish in tiny porcelain bowls clear and frosty opens the following morning the road is good the country gradually improves and by nine o'clock i am engaged in looking at the military exercises of troops quartered in the populous city of hiroshima the exercises are conducted within a large square enclosed with a low bank of earth and a ditch crowds of curious civilians are watching the efforts of raw cavalry recruits to ride stout little horses that buck kick bite and paw the air Every time a soldier gets thrown, the onlookers chuckle with delight. Both men and horses are undersized, but look stocky and serviceable withal. The uniform of the cavalry is blue, with yellow trimmings. The artillery looks trim and efficient, and the horses, although rather small, are powerful and wiry, just the horses one would select for the rough work of a campaign north of hiroshima the country assumes a hilly character the road following up one mountain stream and down another in this mountainous region one meets mail carriers the counterpart almost of the fleet-footed postman of bengal the japanese postman improves upon nature by the addition of a waist cloth and a scant shirt of white and blue cotton check his leather pouch is fastened to a bamboo staff as he bounds along with springy stride he warns people to clear the way by shouting in a musical voice honk honk this cry resembles in a very striking degree the utterances of an old veteran brant or wild goose when speeding northward in the spring to escape a warm wave from the south among these mountains one is filled with amazement at the tremendous work the industrious japs have done to secure a few acres of cultivable land dikes have been thrown up to narrow the channels of the streams so that the remaining width of the bed may be converted into fields and gardens the streams have been literally turned out of their beds for the sake of a few acres of alluvial soil among the mountains chiefly between the mountains and the shore are level areas of a few square miles supporting a population that seems largely out of proportion to the size of the land many of these seashore people however get their livelihood from the blue waters of the inland sea fish sharing the honors with rice in being the staple food of provincial japan the weather changes to quite a disagreeable degree of cold by the time i reach the end of today's ride this introduces me promptly into the mysteries of how the japanese manage to keep themselves warm in their flimsy houses of wooden ribs and semi-transparent paper in cold weather 
an opening in the floor accommodates a brazier of coals over this stands an open woodwork frame quilts covered over the frame retain the heat the modus operandi of keeping warm is to insert the body beneath this frame wrapping the covering about the shoulders snugly to prevent the escape of the warm air within the advantage of this unique arrangement is that the head can be kept cool while if desirable the body can be subjected to a regular hot air bath the following day is chilly and raw with occasional skits of snow people are humped up and blue-nosed and seemingly miserable yet withal they seem to be only humorously miserable and not by any means seriously displeased with the rawness and the snow straw windbreaks are set up on the windward side of the tea-houses and there is much stopping among pedestrians to gather around the tea-house braziers and gossip and smoke everybody in japan smokes both men and women the universal pipe of the country is a small brass tube about six inches long with the end turned up and widened to form the bowl this bowl holds the merest pinch of tobacco a couple of whiffs a smart rap on the edge of the brazier to knock out the residue and the pipe is filled again and again until the smoker feels satisfied the girls that wait on one at the yadoyas and tea-houses carry their tobacco in the capacious sleeve pockets of their dress and their pipes sometimes thrust in the sash or girdle and sometimes stuck in the back of the hair many of the buddhas presiding over the crossroads and village entrances along my route to-day are provided with calico bibs the object of which it is impossible for me to determine owing to my ignorance of the vernacular the bibs are no doubt significant of some particular season of religious observance the important city of okoyama provides abundant food for observation the clean smooth streets the wealth of european goods in the shops and the swarms of ever interesting people as i wheel leisurely through it on saturday december fourth no human being save japs has so far crossed my path since leaving nagasaki nor am i expecting to meet anybody here an agreeable surprise however awaits me for at the corner of one of the principal business thoroughfares a couple of american missionaries appear upon the scene introducing themselves as mr carey and mr cowland they inform me that three families of missionaries reside together here and extend a cordial invitation to remain over sunday i am very glad indeed to accept their hospitality for to-morrow as well as to avail myself of an opportunity to get my proper bearings nothing in the way of a reliable map or itinerary of the road i have been traversing from shimonoseki was to be obtained at nagasaki and i have travelled with but the vaguest idea of my whereabouts from day to day only from them do i learn that the city we meet in is okoyama and that i am now within a hundred miles of kobe north of which place murray's handbook will prove of material assistance in guiding me aright the little missionary colony is charmingly situated on a pine-clad hill overlooking the city from the east several lady missionaries are visiting from other points all americans making a pleasant party for one to meet in such an unexpected manner 
on sunday morning i accompany mr carey to see his native congregation in the nice new church which he says they have erected from their own means at a cost of two thousand yen this letter is a very gratifying statement not to say surprisingly so for it savours of something like sincerity on the part of the converts in most countries the converts seem to be brought to a knowledge of their evil ways and to perceive the beauties of the christian religion through the medium of material assistance provided from the mission instead of spending money themselves for the cause they profess to embrace they expect to receive something from it of a tangible earthly nature here however we find the converts themselves building their own meeting-house and bidding fair ere long to support the mission without outside aid this is encouraging from the standpoint of those who believe in converting the heathen from their own religion to ours and gratifying to the student of japanese character about five hundred people congregate in the church seating themselves quietly and orderly on the mat-covered floor they embrace all classes, from the samurai lawyer or gentleman to the humblest citizen, and from grey-haired old men and women to shock-headed youngsters who merely come with their mothers. Many of these same mothers have been persuaded by the missionaries to seize the heathenish practice of blackening their teeth, and so appear at the meeting in even rows of becoming white ivories like their unmarried sisters numbers of curious outsiders congregate about the open doors and peep in and stand and listen to the sermon of mr carey and the singing the hymns are sung to the same tunes as in america the words being translated into japanese everybody seems to enjoy the singing and they listen intently to the sermon after the sermon several prominent members of the congregation stand up and address their countrymen and women in convincing words and gestures mr carey tells me that any ordinary jap seems capable of delivering a fluent off-hand exposition of his views in public without special effort or embarrassment altogether the japanese christian congregation gathered here in its own church sitting on the floor singing sermonizing and looking happy is a novel and interesting sight to see one can imagine missionary life among the genial japs as being very pleasant saturday and sunday pass pleasantly away and with happy memories of the little missionary colony i wheel away from okoyama on monday morning passing through a country of rich rice-fields and numerous villages for some miles the scene then changes into a beautiful country of small lakes and pine-covered hills reminding me very much of portions of the berkshire hills massachusetts the weather is cool and clear and the road splendid although in places somewhat hilly fifty-three miles are duly scored when at three o'clock in the afternoon i arrive at the city of himeji the yadoya here is a superior sort of a place and himeji numbers among its productions european pan bread steak and bottled beer the japs are themselves rapidly coming to an appreciation of this latter article and even to manufacture it a big brewery being already established somewhere near tokyo 
a couple of young dandies of new japan drop in during the evening send out for bottles of beer and seem to take particular delight in showing off their appreciation of the newly introduced beverage before their countrymen of the ancient regime beyond himeji one leaves behind the mountains emerging upon a broad level rice-producing plain which extends eastward to kobe and the seashore the fine level road traversing the plain passes through numerous towns and villages, and for the latter half of the distance skirts the shore. Old dismantled stone forts, tea houses, eating stalls, fishermen's huts, houseboats, and swarms of jinrikishas and pedestrians make their seashore road lively and interesting. The single artery through which the life of all the southern tributary country ebbs and flows to trade at the busiest treaty port in Japan, this road is constantly swarming with people. Over the Minatogawa River, by an elevated bridge, and one finds himself in a broad street leading through Hyogo to Kobe. These two cities are practically joined together, although bearing different names. Like many of the rivers of Japan, the bed of the Minatogawa is elevated considerably above the surrounding plain. Confined between artificial banks to prevent the flooding of the adjacent fields in spring, the debris brought down from year to year has gradually raised the bed and necessitated continuing raising also of the levees. These operations have very naturally ended in raising the whole affair to an elevation that leaves even the bottom of the stream several feet higher than the fields around. Kobe is one of the treaty ports of Japan, and nowadays is reputed to do more foreign trade than any of the others. One can imagine Kobe being a very pleasant and desirable place to live. The foreign settlement is quite extensive, the surroundings attractive, and the climate mild and healthful. Pleasant days are spent at Kobe and Osaka. Twenty-seven miles of level road from the latter city, following the course of the Yodogawa, a broad shallow stream that flows from Lake Biwa to the sea, brings me to Kyoto. From the 8th century until 1868, Kyoto was the capital of the Japanese Empire, and is generally referred to as the old capital of the country. The present population is about a quarter of a million, about half of what it was supposed to be in the heyday of its ancient glory as the seat of empire. Living at Kyoto is Mr. B, an American ex-naval officer, who several years ago forsook old Neptune's service to embark in the more peaceful pursuit of teaching the ideas of youthful Japs to shoot. The occasion was auspicious, for the whole country was fired with enthusiasm for learning English. English was introduced into the public schools as a regular study. Mr. B is settled at Kyoto, and now instructs a large and interesting class of boys in the mysteries of his mother tongue. Taking a letter of introduction, he makes me comfortable for the afternoon and night at his pleasant residence on the banks of the Yodogawa. Under the pilotage of his private jinrikisha man, I spend a portion of the afternoon in making a flying visit to various places of interest. A party of American tourists are unexpectedly met in the first temple we visit, that of Nishi Hongwanji. The paintings and decorations of this temple, 
one of the ladies says with something akin to enthusiasm, are quite equal to those of the great temple at Nikko. The lady appears to be a missionary resident, or, at all events, a person well-versed in Japanese temples and things. Her companions are fleeting tourists who listen to her explanations with respect, but, like myself, know nothing more when they leave the temple than when they entered. Japanese mythology, religion, temples, politics, history, and titles seem to me to be the worst mixed up and the most difficult for off-hand comprehension of anything I have yet undertaken to peep into. The multitudinous gods of the Hindus, with their no less multitudinous functions, seem to me to be easily understood in comparison with the weird legends and mazy mythology of the flowery kingdom. Near this temple is a lovely little garden that gives much more satisfaction to the casual visitor than the temples. It is always a pleasure to visit a Japanese garden, and, in addition to its landscape attractions, historical interest lends to this one additional charm. The artificial lake is stocked with tame carp, which come crowding to the side when visitors clap their hands, in the expectation of being fed. A pair of unhappy-looking geese are imprisoned beneath an iron grating within the garden. They are kept there in commemoration of some historical incident. What the incident is, however, even the well-informed lady of the party doesn't seem to know. Neither does Murray's voluminous guidebook condescend to explain. A small palace, with interior decorations of the usual conventional subjects, storks, flying geese, rising moons, bamboo shoots, etc., together with a small, round, thatched summer-house, where, five hundred years ago, Ashikaga Yoshimitsu, the shogun monk, was wont to pass the time in meditation, form the remaining sole attractions of the garden. The one place I have been anticipating some real pleasure in visiting is the Shugaku Inn Gardens, one of the most famous gardens in this country, where, above all others, gardening is pursued as a fine art. This, however, is not accessible today, and wearied already of temples, gods, and shaven-pated priests, I give the Jinrikisha Kuli orders to return home. A mile or two through the smooth and level streets, and the hopeful and sanguine rickshaw man dumps me out at another temple. Fancying that, perchance, he might have brought me to something extraordinary, I follow him wearily in. A graduate in the Shinto religion would no doubt find something different about these temples, but to the ordinary, everyday human, to see one is to see them all. My man, however, seems determined to give me a surfeit of temples, and hurries me off to yet another one, ere awakening to the fact that I am trying to get him to return to Mr. B's. The third one I positively refuse to have anything to do with. At Mr. B's I find awaiting my coming an interesting deputation, consisting of the assistant superintendent of the young ladies' seminary, together with three of his most interesting pupils. They have been reading about my tour in the native papers, and, in the assistant superintendent's own words, are very curious at seeing so famous a traveller. 
the three young ladies stand in a row like the veritable three little maids from school in the mikado and giggle their approval of the teacher's explanation they are three very pretty girls and two of them have their hair banged after the most approved american style sweet cakes and tea are indulged in by the visitors and before they leave an agreement is entered into by which i am to visit their school in the morning before leaving and hear them sing bonnie boone and the firefly's light in return for riding the bicycle in the schoolhouse grounds the firefly's light is sung to the tune of old lang syne the japanese words of which commemorate a legend of the tea district of uji near lake biwa the legend states that certain learned men repaired to a secluded spot near uji to pursue their studies on one occasion being out of oil and unable to procure the means of lighting their apartment myriads of fireflies came and illuminated the place with their tiny lamps sufficient for their purpose my compact with the three little maids from school takes me down into the city on something of a detour from my nearest road out next morning the detour is well repaid however besides the singing and organ playing promised the many departments of industrial study into which the school is divided are very interesting laces and embroidery for the tokyo market dresses for themselves and to sell are made by the girls the proceeds going towards the maintenance of the institution one of the most curious scholarships of the place is the teaching of what is known as the japanese ceremony it seems to be a perpetuation of some old court ceremony of making tea for the mikado expressing a wish to see the ceremony i am conducted to a small room divided off by the usual sliding paper panels a class of girls are kneeling in a row confronting a very neat-looking old lady who sits beside a small brazier of coals the old lady is the teacher when she claps her hands one of the paper screens slides gently aside and one of the scholars enters bearing a small lacquer tray with tiny teapot and cups a canister of tea and various other paraphernalia there is really very little to the ceremony the graceful motions of the tea-maker being by far the more interesting part of the performance the tea used is finely powdered and comes from uji where it is grown especially for the use of the mikado's household the tea dust is mixed with hot water by means of a curiously splintered bamboo mixer that looks very much like a shaving brush the result is a very aromatic cup of tea delicious to the nostrils but hardly acceptable to the european palate my jinrikisha man of yesterday precedes me through the streets shouting the honk 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 of the mail runners to clear the way to see him cleave away through the multitudes for me to follow keeping up a six-mile pace the while swinging his arms like a windmill one might well imagine me a real daimyo on wheels with faithful samurai runner ahead warning away the common herd from my path end of section forty two